Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Benjamin Reinhardt. Uh, ben, ben is living in Singapore and he gave me a very good bird's eye view into what it means to be innovative in, in, uh, in Singapore. Uh, and really excited to share this episode with you all and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. I'm on Twitter at StuartAlsopIII. My DMs are open. I'd love to hear what you think. Please send me a message about what you maybe gained from this episode or maybe gained from any of the other episodes I've been publishing. And if you really like this episode, please go ahead and find us on Spotify, Stitcher, uh, iTunes, any of the major podcasting platforms, and go ahead and subscribe, and please leave a review uh, if you're feeling kind. So thank you very much. Hope you enjoy this episode. Please let me know what you think. Bye. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Ben Reinhardt. He is an EIR at Entrepreneur First in Singapore and the host of the Idea Machine Podcast. Really excited to have you on and talk about the global rise in technology uh, production, not only focused in Silicon Valley, but all around the world. And that's why you moved to Singapore, as you were just talking about. So really excited to talk about that. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. So why Singapore? Um, well, so... Part of it is serendipity um, that I, I had in my head that I wanted to be test out this hypothesis that um, Asia is the correct place to build new things, especially new systems. So uh, things that help people build things. Um, so, so that was one of those things that was like vaguely in the back of my head. Um, and I was sort of exploring what I was going to do next. Mm. And I was talking to this guy he said, oh, have you heard of Entrepreneur First? And I had not. So that later that evening, I looked it up, thought, oh, this is interesting, and just saw that they had a job opening in Singapore. So I applied. One thing led to the next, and then I was moving across the world a few weeks later. And um, for, the, for those of my listeners who don't know what an EIR is, can you give them a little bit more into, uh, insight into that? Yeah, so EIR stands for Entrepreneur in Residence. Um, it is one of the most vague job script job titles in the world. Um, and so if you meet anybody else with a job title EIR, you cannot assume that they do what I do. Um, so it can, it, it basically means it's like someone who's, uh, started something before is, is vaguely between things, um, and generally helps out. I think that's the, the one thing that EIRs do all over the world. Mm -hmm. Um, for me specifically. Um, I am in a much more sort of hands-on role in the company. So I help a lot with ops. Um, I do some special projects and then uh, spend a lot of my time working directly with people in the Entrepreneur First program to sort of help them start companies. So I'm sort of like a coach mentor type person. Mm -hmm. So Singapore, what is the most interesting thing you've learned about the Singapore ecosystem for startups uh, in the last month or two? Oh man. Um, so I, I think the most interesting thing that I've learned is one that really almost every startup in the uh, sort of Southeast Asia ecosystem wants to at least have an office here because this is the place in Southeast Asia that has the strongest rule of law. So uh, Vietnam and Indonesia are experiencing crazy growth as a market. Um, but the laws are very uh, ill-defined and constantly changing. Um, that's one thing. Uh, the other is that the Singaporean government is working very hard to transform Singapore's economy from a primarily sort of shipping-based economy to something that's really around 
deep tech and knowledge creation. And so they've really put a lot of help behind the startup ecosystem here, which I think in America, you would look at the government trying to help something like this and really dismiss it. The interesting thing is that when the Singapore government wants something to get done, it tends to actually get done, mm. which is a and very it's, different it's thing. Spending time there, I can definitely uh, attest to that, that, that Singapore works perfectly. It seems like it's like, it just, it just, it just works almost, almost, <laughs> almost to a point of like Disneyland uh, feeling. Yeah. Yeah. People have, have described it as Disneyland with the death sentence. <laughs> and it's funny cause there's this Island called Santosha Island, which is like a Disneyland within Singapore. But I just felt like I was moving from one Disneyland to the next. When I went there. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you know, it's Disneyland's all the way down here. If you go yeah. to there's the Disneyland inside of the Disneyland. It's very secret. So I'm really curious, what is the relationship between Singapore and China? Uh, what is the feeling you get being there in terms of maybe the tech ecosystems or even just geopolitically? What is the sense that you get being in Singapore, people living in Singapore versus what's happening in China? Yeah, so the relationship is primarily a cultural one. Um, if you just look at the demographics of Singapore, the majority of the population identifies as Chinese descended. And something that I didn't realize before I moved to Asia is that when they say Chinese, they, they think of it as an ethnicity mm. and sort of a cultural identity more so than just a nationality. So that's, that's the biggest tie, is that there are just many people in Singapore who identify as Chinese, not the nationality. But then on a sort of government front, the, I was actually at a presentation by people from the Singaporean government, and honestly, they sort of see themselves as a bridge between China, the East, and the more Western uh, countries. And you really see that played out where you walk down the streets and everything is both in, in Chinese and in English. Um, mm. And so that's, that's really how they're trying to position themselves. I think it's um, fairly tricky and we'll, we'll see how it plays out. In terms of the tech ecosystems, they're really quite distinct. Mm. It's, it's basically China and not China. Um, I go to Hong Kong. For, for work as well and talk to people in the tech ecosystem there. And even in, in Hong Kong, it's China and not China. Even, and Hong Kong falls primarily into not China. So that's because at the end of the day, it's really about the money and money you make in China, you cannot really deploy outside of China and, and vice versa. Unless it's through things like Bitcoin or Monero, right? Right. Uh, I I have not delved into that. <laughs> if again, this this may not be true. I didn't China recently outlaw using Bitcoin. So if you, I think they've done it a few times, but I don't. I don't. I, you know, I don't think it actually m makes a difference. Uh, I, I I don't know. I don't know enough to say. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that a lot of Chinese money is a lot of the main reason why Bitcoin is so popular is because of capital flight out of China, uh, either whether that's clandestine or, or, or uh, sanctioned. 
Um, yeah, I would believe that. The The problem is there's one thing where it's like getting your personal money out. Yeah. Another thing is operating as a business, yep. using it to, to transfer funds. And that's, it's just like a whole nother thing and they would audit your books. Yep. So that's, that. Uh, as just running a business, I would be much more concerned doing that. Mm. And so it, it just further, it, it doesn't break down those barriers between China startup ecosystem and not China. Yeah, very interesting. And and so Singapore, so you're not too much into the cryptocurrency. You're 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 um, entrepreneur first. They don't get involved in too many cryptocurrency stuff or I think we funded one cryptocurrency company before I I got there. I'm I am a uh, uh, in the cryptocurrency world, I am skeptical and optimistic. Mm. So it's I'm I'm mostly an outsider i think that there are very cool things that could come out of it i just have not honestly had the bandwidth to <clears> wade in and do my own research on what is bs and what is real mm. <laughs> so that that's that's really my my position on it we we primarily help sort of any kind of deep tech i'm making square scare quotes for for listeners making deep tech company make deep tech companies, which uh, basically means companies with where technology is one of their core value propositions. Mm. So we, we will fund and help people build crypto companies, but the, I just find that the majority of crypto companies could just be better done by being a database. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and so what, what, what are some interesting companies that have come out of first, uh, uh, entrepreneur first? Um, so right now, so let's, I've, I've been there for, for about six months. So I, I'll speak to the ones that I've worked with in the past cycle. Uh, there's, there's a company using drones to deliver goods to ships out at sea. Normally you have to, uh, get it like if you want to get a bolt out to a boat you have to give a guy a bolt he has to get into a little motorboat to drive the motorboat out to the the big boat and deliver the bolt this seems wildly inefficient and so they're they're actually using drones to do that it's back on the point of singapore being a good place to build new things this is something that would absolutely never happen in the united states because of regulation mm. um also worked with people doing everything from using aerogels to create next generation insulation for shipping pharmaceuticals to people using algae to uh, clear out the air in office buildings to uh, people use it, trying to break down plastic. Mm. Um, it's, it's really sort of all over the map mm. in terms of, of what's going on. And are most of these entrepreneurs from Singapore itself or from the rest of the world? I don't know the exact breakdown, but they're they're really from from everywhere. Mm. We have people from all across the world. Usually, they've I, I, many of them are already in Singapore because of school or jobs. There's there's some very good universities here, and that tends mm. to sort of be a magnet for people from all over the world. Mm. Interesting. What is your favorite thing about living in Singapore so far? favorite thing about living in Singapore so far? Hmm. I think it may it's either the, the multiculturalism where it's just, I, I really like, I 
work with, I think I counted it, people from just my office of 25 people. I think we have 12 nationalities represented. Mm. Um, that, or just, you know, everybody will say this, but the public transportation is amazing. Mm. <laughs> like, and the food too. The, yeah, the food's, uh-huh. the food's pretty good. Honestly, California food's better. Really? I, yeah, I hope they don't kick me out of the country. <laughs> but I, I like California food. Better. Yeah. Just don't chew gum as well, because then. Yeah, yes, yeah. correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you've got this podcast called Idea Machines Podcast. What's that about? Uh, so my my focus there is on systems that help turn imagination to reality. That's mm-hmm. sort of the the very broad view. But basically, I feel like we spend a lot of time looking at the things that come out of what I would call innovation systems. So sort of uh, systems of interlocking organizations and people that sort of help shepherd someone being like, aha, I have an idea to something in the world that's impacting people's lives. We, we spend so much time looking at the outcomes where we're like, ah, the iPhone, ah, the polio vaccine, it's amazing. But we, we don't step back and say, okay, why, why, how did these things come to exist? What were the, the chain of events? What were the chain of organizations that all had their hands in making these things exist? And the reason I'm really interested in that is because I think that the only way that we can make the systems better and build new systems is by looking at how they work now. And have you ever heard of the book Loon Shots by Safi Bakal? I am in love with that book. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I did. I did a, a giant Twitter thread about how much I love that book. So yes. you, should re- you should reach out to him. He does interviews. So he, and I interviewed him, and he's a, he's fantastic. Oh, that's amazing. Yes. Um, yeah. I so like I I cannot recommend that book enough. I think it's the one book I've read about sort of making new things that's not just completely anecdote based where it, it mm-hmm. at least attempts to say like, okay, like here's some theory of, of organizations. Yep. And it's great because it comes from his background in biology and we are at our core biological beings. And uh, we, so it's, it's great because it gets into that and, and I really love that framework and I love how he yeah. ties it all. And uh, in the end, he ties it all into world history and all these other things as well. So it's, it's a really yeah. cool. Yeah, I'm interested. Um, how did how did you end up discovering it? Because I honestly, it was just through like a random connection, told me to read it. I think it was on Twitter. I think I saw it. On, I think I saw his interview. I didn't listen to the interview, but I think I saw a, a tweet from AZ16 after their interview with him. I think that's how I found about it. And then I reached out to him and uh, and was, did the interview. And and I've been doing this other kind of series for my podcast where I reach out to somebody and ask them what they're reading, not the author themselves, but somebody who's reading the book. And then I read it and then we have a conversation about the book. Um, oh, that's that's a really good idea. Yeah. So I I can't, I think, yeah, no, I was going to do that with somebody else, but they, they backed out. Uh, but then I ended up just having a conversation with him. Um, yeah, I really like it because with a podcast, you can get trapped in a kind of author cycle where you're going after authors because authors always want to have uh want to get their work out so they're always open to to, to but then you become kind of known as a uh, author podcast so it's like yeah uh, so that was my one author podcast so, no yeah no I, I i i love the idea of getting off the author train 
Yeah. <laughs> have, have you ever noticed how there, because there, so many authors go on podcasts, generally you can avoid reading the book by just sort of listening to three podcasts with mm. the same author and then kind of triangulating Interesting. what the main points of the book are. That was part of the reason I started doing this other podcast was that we could, I could put a piece of content out there that would help people uh, uh, if they don't want to take the time to read the book, then get the understandings of the book. Yeah. But then I, the one issue with that is that what somebody's pointed out is that a book is basically like spaced repetition memorization. If you take a long time to read the book, usually mm -hmm. a lot of the authors will repeat the points and then come back to the main point and bring all these other threads. So it's like repetition over a long period of time. Whereas if you only listen to a podcast episode once about the book, it's very unlikely to stick inside your head. Right. That's, that's why you need three. Yeah. That's why you need what? That's why you need three. It's three different podcasts. Very cool. Interesting. And what has the, what's the biggest thing you've learned from doing this podcast? Oh, man. I, I think the biggest thing that I've learned... I'm going to, again, I'm, I'm very bad at figuring out the, the one single biggest thing. So I'm going to give just a couple of, of top things. One is that it is much harder to make a, a good podcast than I thought. Mm. When I went into it, I thought, oh, it's easy. I'll just record a conversation and then put it on the internet. <laughs> but that there's, there's just a lot of pieces, even for something that's not heavily edited there's there's still uh many pieces i learned that i learned that upwork is awesome which is directly related to the first point mm. um i just i work with an amazing editor via upwork and it's i i don't know how i would do it and uh i think i knew this already but everybody likes attention and so it makes it much everybody's excited to do podcasts mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's well it's funny because I, I thought that as well but then i've been noticing that it's maybe and maybe it's the subject i'm interviewing people about i'm interviewing people about kind of like stress and like difficult things so it's uh so oftentimes it's hard for me to get the um guest members to share uh uh share what they've been doing and so that makes me think it's not necessarily about attention because if it was attention, then they would want to share it. But it feels like it's more, it feels almost like it's goodwill and that they just want to get their message out so that it maybe helps. That might be a rosy tinted uh, view of things, but what do you think? Um, hmm. I think I'm still, I think that people tell themselves that, hmm. but and again, maybe it's, maybe it's different people. I, I think it's it's more that uh, it's people people are more willing to have a conversation on a podcast than they are just in in just talking one on one. Mm, and true. yeah, and so that's that's what makes me feel like well, the the difference is really the the attention levels mm, mm -hmm. from it. Mm. And that is a very interesting thing that I definitely is very, is very clear that that's true. Um, it's so funny that put a microphone in front of people and all of a sudden it's easy to get people to say yes. Whereas, whereas before <laughs> it's like, you know, if I asked somebody out to coffee, like half the people would no way they'd answer. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. On the flip side, 
do you ever have this experience where you're having a conversation with someone over coffee and you really wish that it had been recorded and you're That's, like, oh, this would have made the best <laughs> podcast. And I can't really ask you to like have the same conversation with yeah. me. Mm-hmm. But, and that's really interesting because that gets into, this is a question I, I was asking on Twitter the other day. Uh, what happens? What are the dynamics? How do the dynamics of a conversation change once you put, some, put a microphone in front of somebody? You'd probably be a good person to have some thoughts on this. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that one is there's less riffing. I think that when, when we, right now, if we didn't have a, when we don't have a, a microphone in front of us, it's much more free flowing because right now you're the interviewer, I'm the interviewee mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm sort of uh, depending on you to, to push forward. So it either has that dynamic and either I will answer the question and stop and wait for you to ask another question or the flip side, I'll just keep talking and talking and talking because mm. I'm the guest on the podcast and I have all the things to say. Interesting. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, so definitely, but it changes for guest to guest. Sometimes, and this is another, this gets into another conversation question I asked on Twitter, what's the difference between a conversation and an interview? Uh, and, uh, and I would say that sometimes it feels like conversations and sometimes it feels like interviews because there is this sense of role. There is like, I, I'm, I'm, re- I'm really comfortable playing this role of asking questions and stuff like that. I'm less comfortable getting questions asked to me, um, although I, I like doing it, I wanna try more. Uh, but so there's a role and that it, it does, there is definitely, you know, when I reach out to people and ask them, hey, do you wanna do an interview? I'm expected to lead the entire thing the whole way through. Um, uh, but then in a conversation, and it was really funny, I had my first conversation type uh, podcast with this guy named Kapil Gupta who said who I, I was like okay this is my theme and he's like no no I don't do themes uh, I, I don't want I don't want any sort of theme that that destroys truth that's not that's going to make it impossible to find the truth conversations about finding the truth so we're, we're not going to have a theme he's like okay let's do it and uh, yeah. that was really interesting because I went in that with no no questions and no theme uh, a lot of awkward silences, like like ten minutes of silence one time, um, and uh, and and so it's really interesting to 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 have that because now I actually now I like just conversations. Like if people want questions beforehand, like I didn't give you any questions, I, I sent you a doc and everything like that. Um, so this feels a little bit more like a conversation, but I, I think that conversations are both more valuable. Mm. Um, at the same time, they are. Uh, well, well uh, they're less coherent and they're, they're less, they're, they're slightly harder to listen to sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have recorded conversations uh, just like not, not for a podcast. It, it was literally just like, Hey, like, let's get coffee. I'm going to record this. Can I, can I record this? And listening back through it, it's kind of a mess. If you actually listen to how we talk, mm-hmm. we, we stutter, we repeat ourselves and it may, and I'm not sure how much harder it is for your listeners to actually uh, pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. So it, but I think that at least in, in my head, it's harder to, for people to pay attention to when I'm actually just talking to you mm-hmm. as opposed to talking to you and the audience. And so 
um, whether it's real or imagined, I think that that may be one of the other differences where we're actually a little bit in performance mode. Mm, yeah, that definitely shows up. Uh, as soon as you put the microphone on in front of somebody's face, performance mode shows up, which I find leads to better conversations that are more publishable, uh, which is fun and I really enjoy it. But then it also has led me to have more conversation, more interesting conversations in my personal life as well, because it allows me to, um, uh, it's just, I've learned all these things about, about having a conversation that, that is, are very difficult to learn unless you, unless you do a lot of them and have this performance mode type of conversation as well. Interesting. What, what do you think are some of the things? <laughs> the, the, the biggest one is asking, getting more of an intuition into a good question to ask somebody that'll get a conversation started and doing that as quickly as possible. So, so it's really allowed me to cut through a lot of small talk in parties uh, because I can get to, for example, I start asking people, what's the craziest thing that happened to you this week? Uh, and there's an awkward silence usually when, when, that, when I ask that question because people have to sit and think. But as long as I'm comfortable with it, uh, they're comfortable with it, and we just have the awkward silence, and then they bring up something, and then and then and then we get into a conversation that, that's free flowing and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Nice. It also weeds out the boring people really fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're like nothing, and you're like, oh great, I don't have to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That conversation's over. Um, <laughs> uh, so, and then. You said something else that was really interesting. Oh, about, yeah, when you went back and listened to the conversation, which brings up another really interesting kind of thing that I've seen happening where I'll have the conversation, I'll have it think that it, I'll think that it went a particular way and then I'll listen to it and realize that it went in a completely different way that I wasn't expecting. Do you ever get that? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's a testament to how our memories are not perfect. Yep. Right. Like everybody always says, you know, it's like, oh, human memories are really bad. And then you go back and you listen to this and you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this completely differently. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you, the, there's the, the really interesting anecdote on that that I've heard on a podcast with an author that I don't have to read his book. Um, sorry, <laughs> author whose name I don't remember. Um, <laughs> was that they did this study where uh, this one psychology professor immediately after the Challenger explosion mm. had all of his students write down uh, like what happened that day and what their feelings were of that. And then I think like 10, 20 years later, he had them come back in and write down what they were feeling and mm. what they were, uh, what happened that day. And then he brought out the old papers and one, they, they were different. And two, the students insisted that the old ones were wrong. <laughs> they said, no, 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 that's impossible. That is absolutely not what happened. That is absolutely not what I was feeling. This is really what I was feeling. <laughs> it's like, and it's so interesting because it's like, once you really understand that and understand the science behind what, memory really is and what what happens when we remember remember something you just realize that most of our childhood memories are are false like so like most of our memories of the last month are not are not accurate to say the least um and and so when you think about that it really kind of changes your understanding of like what's actually happening right now as well because the thing that is uh, recording this inside of my head is not as accurate as the microphone i've got next to me um, and it's not as, as accurate as the, 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 the video that we're, we're, we're doing. 
so it becomes really hard to trust ourselves uh, when it when it comes to remembering things. But then there's also a part of our brains that ignores that completely and thinks that we're right as well, like no matter what. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think the the takeaway that I have from that is just having a little bit of humility mm. um, around just around the past, I think mm-hmm. it's, it's just like, have, be, be open to the fact that you may be wrong, even if you're really, really sure you're right. And it happened that way. Mm. Um, I think is, is sort of my, my takeaway from all of that. So I, I kind of want to bring it back to uh, Singapore and your understanding of it. Maybe even totally. your, what's that? I said totally. Okay. Yeah. And maybe even uh, geopolitically, so Singapore is this city and it's right on the Straits of Malacca, right? And it's like right there in the shipping channel between China and India um, and Southeast Asia itself has always been the central place between China and India, two huge places that have, that have just kind of like influenced it so much in terms of religion, culture, all these different things. Uh, where with the rise of China and some would say relative decline of the U.S., although that's an arguable point, um, and maybe the rise of Africa as well, uh, and maybe the rise of India. What is Singapore's five to ten year kind of like trajectory? Yeah. So I'll I'll I, I can speak to this. I am absolutely not the expert. Um, I can point everybody at many more people who think much more about this. Um, I, I think that honestly, Singapore is still trying to figure it out. They they obviously have a plan. Um, but at the end of the day, it is a country of, you know, around 7 million people. So compared to everything else, it's, it's really, really tiny. Um, and so the other, like everything else that happens will will affect, um, Singapore, um, just complete so on just on the note of it being on a major shipping channel for anybody who has not been to Singapore um, the first time you fly in it's kind of incredible especially at night because it looks like if you're flying over a city where it's just lights as far as the eye can see but every single one of those lights is a ship that is docked off of the coast mm. so it's just absurd the number of ships mm. um, so that is so it really is this this shipping channel and just one other aside on that, something that someone pointed out to me recently that may actually uh, affect Singapore more than any sort of geopolitics is actually whether or not the earth warms enough that there is a free shipping lane in the Arctic. Because basically all of the shipping traffic that comes past Singapore could more easily go through the Arctic if that actually happened. And so Singapore's economy might be completely fucked mm. uh, if ships don't have to go through uh, the, the, the strait at all. Um, so that's actually going... To, so one of the reasons that Singapore is so... I mentioned that they're really focused on building up the sort of tech in their economy is that what they're trying to do is make themselves not dependent mm. on the shipping and not dependent on these geopolitics at all so so I, I guess i could say like that's part of the five-year plan is just <laughs> trying to make it so that all of these geopolitics don't matter and mm-hmm. what they're doing is they're really just producing really valuable knowledge work and technology so well, that's mm-hmm. yeah 
And that's the, that's the such the, so the very interesting thing about Singapore in relation to tech, it seems like is that it is a place where there's rule of law, as you said. And, uh, and so if you're going to be a global company, you can base it in the United States or you can base it in Singapore. It seems like those are the big two options unless you're in Europe or, or, or China or something like that. But if you want to be a global ca- uh, company, it seems like, you know, Silicon Valley or Singapore, would, would that be a correct statement? Yeah, that, that would be a correct statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally both actually, like mm-hmm. the, the companies that get very big in Singapore tend to also open up a Silicon Valley office and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, the, the flow of companies is kind of that they get started and scale in the US and then move to Singapore more often than the other way around. Um, and, and that's just because, so the, the, the dynamics of growing a company in the two different places is quite different because uh, in the US, you don't have to, you can get huge without ever having to worry about dealing with sort of like different countries, regulations and laws and localization, um, which is, is really quite nice. And then you can internationalize after that. Whereas in Singapore, you basically have to be international immediately because mm. the market here is mm. tiny. Um, so there's that very, very growth, that difference of growth. Um, and then just to go back to, to how everything's with, with China, I think um, the apparently what has happened, I was talking to a, a taxi driver is that the it's actually it hurts Singapore's economy because the a lot of the shipping in Singapore used to involve um, taking like all, like one big boat of goods would come in and then they would distribute it into a bunch of other boats that would then go other places but so many of the ships just go straight to just go straight to China. Um, a lot of that work now gets done in Shanghai mm. and um, a lot of the shipping of smaller, more valuable goods has actually moved to air freight, um, which goes through Hong Kong. So Hong Kong is the world's largest uh, air freight uh, port. Mm. Um, and so that uh, all of that commerce has actually moved away from Singapore as well. So I think on a, like a very large level, uh, the, the sort of the rise of China has hurt Singapore's old economy uh, in, ter- in terms of like logistics. Mm-hmm. And then that, that kind of leads to what you were talking about earlier was why they're making that switch to, to tech because, because that kind of gives them uh, access to something that's not reliant on shipping as well. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like the whole, like, I I think the majority of Singapore's initiatives are all really focused around um, sort of independence. So they have Mm -hmm. all, like they do tons of research to try to make themselves food independent, Mm. water independent. Oh, interesting. Um, Right. So Singapore imports a ton of food and that makes them dependent on on other countries um i think they actually have achieved water independence which is completely different than the situation they're in 40 years ago through desalinization or how um i think i think so i think they have a real so that may be wrong 
<laughs> we should we should fact check that. Yeah, yeah. I do know that uh, at least occasionally they do export water to Malaysia. Oh, uh, interesting. Um, yeah, I'll definitely read up more on that. That sounds like an interesting thing. And the food independence also sounds really interesting. Do you know of any startups that are that are succeeding in in terms of food uh, production or? Um, honestly, no, that's, I, I've, I, I think it's, this may be one of those goals that they, they fall short on. Mm. Um, we'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm hoping it's, it's one of those sort of exponential curve type things where right now it looks like progress is really slow, but, um, they'll ramp up very mm. quickly. Um, you, you can always tell in Singapore what is important and what is not important because there's this class of food where the price is equal to or lower than it is in the U S this is like eggs and chicken. Mm. And then there's some food where it's just wildly more expensive. Mm. In the US, uh, I used to eat a lot of Greek yogurt and cottage cheese before I moved here. And then just uh, that, that habit became completely mm. when I moved because of the, the price difference. Interesting. Yeah. Uh. So we got we got about five minutes left. What is one thing that you've read, you, a concept you've read, or an idea, or a book that has most changed your life uh, in the last month, or most influenced your um, your your life? And so I would have I would have said loon shots, but we already talked about that. <laughs> um, so let me let me look at what's on my desk. Actually, um, so can I again? I'm going to. I'm going to do two because uh, I'm annoying like that. One is um, this book called the systems Bible. Mm. It's actually from, it was originally written, I believe in the seventies and it, um, I think it just pushes back against everybody who is uh, obsessed with systems as like the solution to everything. Mm. Um, And basically like talks about, systems from a a very realistic standpoint of like okay like they this is this is how they fail and this is how you like just cannot this is the limit of uh how good they are Mm -hmm. um and i think that really enforces so um i don't know do you you know the concept of like story thinking and systems thinking Uh, i do know about systems thinking i've never heard of stories story thinking before so, so story thinking is, is kind of like the opposite of uh, systems thinking. So in, in the, uh, a tech lens, I think of uh, story thinking is really what designers do mm. and systems thinking is what engineers do. Mm. Um, I, I think that depending on who you hang out with, one is usually over, like people value one over the other. Mm. And I think that this, is, this book really helps you see that you need both. Um, so that's one. Uh, the other is right now I'm reading this book called Power, mm. and it is just the most. I think I read uh, that. Yeah, I I am really digging it because it is one of the most just like raw, honest yeah. breakdowns of power, yeah. how it works, how people get it, and it is just very refreshing because it goes against all the leadership books that are like, oh yeah, just like be a good person by example and, and you'll succeed. And this is like, no, honestly, like, no, that's, that's how you screw yourself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
and it's not and and so and it's just like all these uncomfortable truths uh-huh. um, i i really like books that are like that totally that really kind of force you to confront your own understanding of how things get done and and because you have to adapt certain you don't have to adapt to the whole thesis but but you bring in certain points that are like oh okay i guess i never thought about that that does seem kind of true um, yeah yeah mm-hmm. Well, cool. Thank you so much. How can people find more about what you're doing, your podcast, uh, anything? Um, interesting? Yeah. So I think Twitter and, uh, is, and my podcast are the best. Um, Twitter, I'm just at Ben Reinhardt. And my podcast is ideamachinespodcast.com. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. <laughs> yeah. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Ben. Uh, I'll be releasing every day, uh, episodes every day, Monday through Friday for the next couple of weeks. Uh, and then I'll be going on retreat and I'll probably go back to a Monday, Friday release schedule, but who knows, maybe I'll just continue publishing like mad, like crazy. Uh, have a great day. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any of the major podcasting platforms and go ahead and re- subscribe and maybe even give a review. Thank you very much. Bye.